Hey, before we uh, dive into today's message, I kind of want to make a plea to you. I know a lot of people were gone on uh, spring break and, and trips and stuff this past week, so you might have missed church last Sunday. So I just really want to encourage you that if you missed last Sunday's sermon, that you would go back and give it a listen. You can go to our website, you can go to our Facebook page and, uh, and give that a listen. I really feel like it's probably going to be the most important message of the series, kind of the one that if you don't get that one, it's going to be really hard for you to see much progress moving forward. Um, to be honest, it's something, um, it's content that needs to be reckoned with by all of us. It's not really something that we can kind of walk away from with indifference or inaction um, because there's simply no shortcut to a more obedient heart that doesn't include a deep journey into the unhealed wounds of our life. Wounds that cloud our perspective on God, ourselves, and others in ways that inhibit our ability to trust and lay down our self-protective coping mechanisms. So please go back and give it a listen. Um, or if you did hear it, I just want to encourage you to continue to have conversations with friends and mentors around the content. Because I'm afraid, like I said, if, if you choose not to really dive into it, the rest of the series is probably not going to yield as much as you're hoping that it might. I'm Bob Miller, and I approve this message. <laughs> so, Most of us would say that we love God. If I just put that question out here to the audience this morning, who loves God, I would imagine that just about everybody would throw their hands up in the air pretty quickly, pretty enthusiastically, okay? But if I asked a follow-up question where I called you to define what loving God looks like in your life, what evidence or markers existed to verify that position, and that might be a little bit of a different conversation, might be a little more interesting. How do we define what love for God looks like? So when Jesus burst onto the scene to begin his, early, his earthly ministry, <clears throat> the beginnings of the gospel say that he was going from town to town, and there was this one phrase that he kind of kept repeating. You see in, in all the different gospels, pretty much. Um, what was that phrase? Anybody know? What were some of the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he started his ministry? All right, then. <laughs> first thing that popped in my head was the old Bud Knives commercial. What's up? That's not what Jesus did. What did he say? Uh, even before that, repent, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Okay, that word repent, biblically defined, means this to rearrange your entire way of thinking, feeling, and being in order to forsake that which is wrong. That's pretty unyielding. Isn't it? To rearrange your entire way of thinking, feeling, and being. I mean, it's just like you got to overhaul everything in order to, to begin this new path. Okay? And from his earliest days, Jesus didn't really come with a lot of suggestions, he came with commands. 
Just like when we took a look at the very beginning of this series, way back in the garden, when Jesus created, I mean, sorry, when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them commands. He told them, hey, I need you to, to tend this garden. I need you to not take fruit from this tree. There was this relationship set up where there was an understanding that he was in charge and that humans were to obey him. That, that was how life was set up in the garden. And Jesus followed up that call to repent with another command to his first disciples. Now, Renee, yes, follow me, okay? So he follows up, repent, and believe the good news with follow me. It's this immediate call to obedience, a laying down of everything that they would have known to embrace this very mysterious and unknown future with him. Why was Jesus so resolute in his call? Because he knows. He knew what would lead to our flourishing, the kind of relationship that we were to have with God that would lead to ultimate joy and fullness in life. And he knew that kind of shifting in heart allegiance was an all-or-nothing endeavor. Like you can't follow somebody and still have one foot at home, right? That's why Jesus tells this other story of, of these folks that he invited to come follow me, but they said, well, first let me go do this, you know, get, let me go do this, let me bury my father, let me, he's like, no, follow me. There's not a lot of in-between with obedience to Jesus. And Jesus spent three years in very close relationship with this inner circle of 12 disciples. They had seen and experienced his teaching and his miracles like firsthand they he they walked with him and their journey together led, led them to this one kind of last encounter what they call the last supper this last meal together the night before jesus's death so i want you to open your bibles to john chapter 14 it's page 1536 So if you had a, a Bible like mine, you'd see that we're in the middle of uh, a lot of red words, okay, which means that Jesus is in the middle of kind of a long teaching, this teaching section here. This section of the gospel is known as the upper room discourse, okay, this upper room where they had the last supper, and several key events are taking place during this time. It's kind of like Jesus' last words to his followers, like, these are the things I want you to remember because I'm leaving here soon. And he's in the middle of this long teaching about his impending death. And he's telling them all that they can expect. Hey, here's what's going to happen in, in, the, in the days and weeks to follow. And here's, here's how I'm going to provide for you so that you can carry on this mission. And if you looked back a chapter to chapter 13, what happens right before this is Jesus begins this encounter um, by washing the disciples' feet, right? They wore sandals, it was dusty, so they come in for a meal, and usually the servants in the house would be the one that would kind of clean everybody's feet, get them presentable for the meal, and Jesus says, I'm doing that for you. I'm showing you what it means to lay down your life for others and to serve people. And the narrative continues as they sit down to dinner. Judas, Jesus says that somebody's gonna betray me. Judas exits the dinner to set the wheels in motion for his betrayal. 
And then Jesus predicts that Peter is going to disown him three times before the next morning. So it's just kind of this really heavy, troubling, disheartening passage. There's a lot going on. And Jesus knows that he kind of needs to steady everybody. Everybody's probably getting a little freaked out and encourage them before he leaves. So let's take a look at, at verse 15 of chapter 14 of John. And this is kind of the verse that our series is based on. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me. I mean, these guys had left everything. Their, their careers, their families. Some of them were married. They left wives behind to go and follow Jesus. What do you mean, if you love me? Of course they loved him. Well, Jesus probably would have said that he loved him a few weeks before. Peter probably got out of bed that morning thinking, man, I love Jesus. But some things had shifted a little bit, right? Now I'm sure the other 10 disciples are looking around thinking, do I love him? I thought I did. Well, the proof is in the pudding, so to speak, because Jesus makes this correlation between what you say you believe and then how you live. Okay, those are, those are two different things. And he just drives this point home again and again and again. Look down just a few verses. Verse 21. He says, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Look at verse 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Verse 24, anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. Look at John 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Okay, four times there in just a few short verses. And this wasn't the first time that Jesus had said something to this effect. Look back in John chapter 8. You can put that slide up there. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay? So this had been a theme of, of his teaching. This wasn't the first time they were hearing this. Long after Jesus' death and resurrection, his disciples, years in the future, now are writing their own letters in the Bible. I want you to turn over to 1 John Chapter 5, which is in the back of your Bibles, page 1741, back by Revelation. First John 5, <clears throat> verse 2. It says, this is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God. To keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. Now turn back a couple pages to First Peter, to the left. First Peter, that guy who had just been told that he was going to disown Jesus, he's writing now years in the future. He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, in verse 1, to God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father 
through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Why were we chosen? What does Peter say? We were chosen to what? Raise your hand. To what? Yeah. To be obedient. We were chosen to be obedient. That's what we are to do. Okay? There's this correlation between thinking and action. In his letter, the Apostle James set up this other correlation. He says, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you a faith that's dead. Right? These two things have to go hand in hand. There has to be action behind what you believe. So it is with love. Love only has meaning if there is obedience associated with it. Jesus asks a really piercing question in Luke 6, 46. He says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? That's a really good question, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes we want to say that as parents, right? Why do you call me dad? But then don't do what I ask you to do, right? Dad implies like a relationship, an authority, like should lead to some obedience once in a while. Now, when Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, keep my commands, he means all of his commands. Okay, not just the ones we like or the ones we pick. <laughs> but there, there would have been one command in particular that would have been really fresh on their minds as they're hearing this. Okay? Look back in chapter 13. So flip back to, to John 14, but then we're going to back up just a few verses into, into 13. So just before he says, if you love me, obey my commands... He had said this in John 13, verse 34. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. By this, everyone will know. And what I love about that command to love others is that it's not circumstantial. It's not based on how things are going in your life, whether things are going well or poorly. It's not based on your social status, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're married or single, whether you're talented or ordinary. It's not based on gender or race, or any other qualifier you would want to put on there. It's about our inner life. It's about our heart's posture towards others, actively laying down our will for his is where the rubber meets the road, right? When we think about in relationship to loving others, when it confronts our sinful patterns that get in the way of us loving God and others. So, for instance, right? Our desire to be right in relationships. Our desire to be liked. Our desire to win. Our desire to be individualistic. 
to be safe, to be comfortable. We have to ask ourselves, did those desires trump our desire to love others well? Is it more important for me to be right or to love? Or to be liked or to love? Or to be comfortable or to be loved or to love well? Not to be loved, but to love, right? And in case we're self-deceived about what love really looks like, Paul gave us this great reminder in 1 Corinthians 13 that we read a lot of weddings that describes what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Just leave that up there for a moment. So earlier I would have said, you know, if we raise our hand if you love God, then most people would have raised their hand. If I ask you now, I said, you know, raise your hand if you love others. Well, some of you maybe would have raised your hand, right? <clears throat> but then if you view it through this lens, well, what I mean by that is, are you patient with people? Do you keep a record of wrongs about people? Do you envy others? Are you kind? All of a sudden, the hands might start to <laughs> drift down a little bit because it puts some qualifiers on what that means, what it means to love other people well. And every follower of Christ is called to the same standard. <laughs> and none of those things are really our natural tendencies. It's a process of transformation. We are being made into the image of God a little bit at a time. Okay? If we love God, we should be able to look at this list and ask, am I becoming more patient? Am I becoming more kind? Less envious, less proud, less selfish, less vindictive. And how do we know if we're growing in those virtues? How do we know? We ask those who know us best. We ask them, how am I doing? Am I becoming more patient, more loving, more kind, less vindictive, whatever, you know, of those you think, man, I really struggle with that. We ask people. We don't just guess. We don't just evaluate ourselves because we tend to be one or the other, right? Some of us tend to think too highly of ourselves. Some of us tend to think not enough of ourselves. We beat ourselves up all the time. We think we're never great at anything. Other of us think we're awesome at everything. I'm in that camp. Okay? We ask other people who know us well. We give them permission to speak that truth to us. We have community and accountability. And the very fact that we invite that communal input shows that we long to honor and obey God. So have you given that permission to someone in your life? I would recommend if you're married that you start with your spouse because they know you the best. You might fool some other people out there. You're not fooling them. So to go to your spouse and say, hey, I'm giving you permission 
Now, maybe you didn't have to give them permission, right? Maybe they said, hey, you're being a jerk, right? I'm pulling out this list, all right? And I don't see you measuring up. So maybe they're great at that, give you more than you want to know, okay? But in a loving and kind spirit of, hey, we're trying to build one another up, hey, I'm giving you permission. When you see me acting in a way that's not consistently loving, would you please tell me? Because I don't want to be like that right? I know that I can come across as fill in the blank. For me, controlling, uh, critical, demanding, whatever it might be for you, whatever you wrestle with, that's not who I want to be. I want to be like Jesus. So I'm giving you permission when you see me be not like Jesus, tell me please in a loving way, right? Because the Bible also says speak the truth in love. And it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, not your critical, nagging, beating us over the head with how horrible we are, right? That doesn't really lead to change as much as we might, might wish it did. Okay, so we invite people. And then even outside of that, you know, I have a, a, a men's group that I, I come to our small group with the idea that, hey, guys, if you see something inconsistent in me, that you please tell me. I'm open to hearing that. I want to know because I want to obey. So that's just some little patterns and, and some things that we can place into our life to help us. Remember, obedience is about desire, okay? We are works in progress. We are being transformed. Every time we're disobedient doesn't mean that we don't love Jesus anymore. Did you hear that? Every time that we're disobedient doesn't mean that we don't love Jesus anymore. He's not looking for perfection. And I can tell you how it's worked for me. Okay, when I was younger, like a year ago, I used to be really arrogant and prideful, okay? But now I'm a little bit less of those things. But honestly, in my early years of following Jesus, I, I, was, I was a Christ follower, but I had a lot to learn about love, and I shared a little bit about that last week. I wanted to be right, honestly, in a lot of my interactions and conversations. I thought I was, so... But I, wanted also, I just wanted things to go my way. I wanted things to be efficient. I wanted things to be task first. I want to get stuff done. The way things made sense to me. And honestly, I wanted other people to change so loving them didn't demand so much of me. Does that make sense? I wanted other people to change so that loving them didn't demand so much of me. Just become more like me, then it'll be easier to love you. Well, because we'll both be right, for one, but. But guys, even just in my home, so if we boiled this down to just where I live, okay, my wife is just not like me in hardly any ways. She looks at the world, her perspective, the way she goes about what she values is, is completely opposite of me. Efficiency, not important. Task first, nope. I mean, go down the list, all right? Then I have four kids with very different personalities. None of them are wired like me. We don't have the same Enneagram number. None of the kids are, are, are my type, right? So loving them each uniquely requires me to be humble. It requires me to ask for help. What does loving you look like? How can I love you best? It requires me to apologize a lot. Hey, I didn't get that right. 
I was trying to love you, but I don't think you received it as love, and so I need to do over. And that's before I even step out of the door to go love other people in the world. <laughs> because God doesn't call us just to love the people in our home. He says, I want you to love the stranger, and I want you to love your enemies. Okay, so the, the stakes get even higher. The challenge gets higher, right? So, whew, love is hard. And it can feel like a chore. Maybe it did in my younger days, but it doesn't really anymore. I love this quote by a lady named Leah Lively I came across this week. She says, when we obey God's commands out of duty or obligation, love can become a chore. Some people are easier to love than others. At times, we are one of those hard-to-love people. God made clear what our motivation for loving others should be. When his son gave his life as a punishment for the sin of the world, the sacrifice of Jesus was the ultimate act of love. He died for all of us, especially those who are the hardest to love, those who commit crimes, those who oppose our political convictions, and those who differ from our morals and values. Jesus Christ's death serves as a bridge of love over every difference and opposition between all of us. Any thoughts on that? What stands out from that, that quote? Yeah, he says it goes back to that idea that we've talked about here before, that the ground at the foot of the cross is level, like we're all in equal need of God's grace and forgiveness and mercy, right? Nobody's better than anybody else. Yeah. Yeah, he said we can't do that on our own. In our own strength, we'll, we'll fail in that. And so God provides us a way to do that. And we'll, we're going to get to that. Great segue. No, awesome, right? I think one thing that, that stood out to me is that, you know, just that part about like, hey, you're the difficult person, right? You're always saying, oh, those people are so hard to love. Yeah, you too. Me too. Nobody's easy to love. <laughs> okay. Um, I, just, I just think about this, that Christ's death serves as a bridge of love for every difference and opposition between all of us. Man, that is such a powerful phrase. I, I, um, I was in Liberty this past week. My cousin, who I, I grew up with, we're kind of like brothers, about three months younger than me. Um, we think really differently about the world. And, um, but one thing that was really interesting as we were talking is just like, you know, we're the same age, and he's just like, he's just like I'm just so much more, I mean, God has just shaped and changed my heart so much more over time that like I just don't have the energy or desire to argue with people anymore about stuff <laughs> like there's so many things that you could be contentious about in life with people and he's just like really I just want to listen and just hear people and and just love people better than I want to be right about walking away from a conversation with somebody 
making sure they understood what I had to say. I just thought it was a really interesting, <laughs> mature perspective. So um, it was really good. What does it look like to keep the commands of Christ? This verse in 1 Chronicles 28.8 is insightful. It says this, Now therefore in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commands of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. So if we're going to love God and others well, it says that we have to seek out his commands. We have to seek it out. That, that's, a, that's a posture in itself, right? It implies action. How many commands? Is that verse still up there? Does it say, seek out some of the commands? No, it says all of the commands. So we proactively seek them out. You know, it's almost kind of like that, well, I don't, you know, I don't want to know what the laws are because then I'd have to follow them, right? But our desire should be, I want to know what God wants me to do, what a God-honoring life would be. So that's why I spend time here. I seek them out. I want to know because I believe that it's going to be what's best for me. We do three other key things as we seek them out. One is that we obey them. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceives yourself, so deceive yourselves, but do what it says. Okay, so we obey them. We obey them promptly. <laughs> I will hasten and not delay to obey your commands. What tends to happen when we don't obey promptly? What do we do in our head? Or what happens? Quickly. What's that? We forget. Yes, what else? We rationalize and justify and make excuses and look for loopholes and, right? You know, when, when the spirit nudges you, oh man, you need to go talk to that person. Uh, uh, that person's probably going to think I'm weird. They, they don't even really like me, you know? I mean, we just come up with all kinds of reasons, all right? And that's the enemy. The enemy's job is to get us to not obey. So the quicker we are to respond... When we know, yeah, that's true, I should do that, that seems consistent with what God would want me to do, and then we just take action, the blessings flow more quickly, right? Finally, we delight in that obedience. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. This is not an obedience based on fear. Right? It says, it didn't say, if you fear me, obey my commands. It said, if you love me. This is based on affection and attraction. 1 John 4.18 says, perfect love casts out fear. I love the way John Piper describes it. This is what he said about this. He says, which means that our love for him is a response to beauty and greatness and glory. It's not a response to need or weakness or defect, which also means that love for Jesus is pleasurable. It's desiring him because he is infinitely desirable. It's admiring him because he is infinitely admirable. It's treasuring him because he is infinitely valuable. It's enjoying him because he's infinitely enjoyable. 
being satisfied with all that he is because he is infinitely satisfying. It's the reflex of the awakened and newborn human soul to all that is true and good and beautiful embodied in Jesus. How could we not want to obey such a beautiful, great, and glorious God? Obedience flows out of a heart that delights in Jesus. Contrast that with what we find in John 3.19. It says this, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. You know, before you met Christ, you desired darkness. You enjoyed it. You preferred it. Not out of duty, but you loved it out of craving. But if we're born again, then our nature has changed. We've been made into a new creation in Christ. So our cravings and desires now are for light and truth. It's what we want in our life, right? It's what we'll want to do. So when Jesus says things like, follow me, abide in me, receive me, ask me, like we'll want to do those things. Our, our nature is turned towards him. And behind it all, as always, is God's desire to bless us when we take strides of obedience. So we're going to look back if you're still in John 14 or want to pop back there real quick. This is kind of getting about what Kelsey was saying earlier. Let's take a look at some of the blessings for those who follow his commands. So let's look at verse 16. Right after he says, if you love me, keep my commands, he says, and I will ask the Father. And he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. So let's look at just verse 16 through 21. What are the blessings of obeying his commands? What does he say? I'm going to provide what for you? Just look at it. It's like an open note test. Like it's right there for you. Okay. This is not complicated. The spirit. He's going to provide the spirit. What else is he going to do? What's that? Not leave us as orphans, right? I'm going to come, come back to you. I'm not going up to heaven and then see you. Good luck, right? Anything else? Yes. He's going to advocate for us. Yeah, right? Before the throne, he's going to be praying and praying that we would find help, right? To obey more. He says that we're going to be in eternity with him. I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Before, uh, before long, this world will see me no more, but you will see me. 
because I live with you, you also will live. So he's, he's going to give us eternal life. So many things there that he's just excited to bless us in. Earlier, we talked about the story that Jesus told in, in Luke chapter 6. We, we talked about just the first part of that. I want to finish that story for you. I'm just going to read it. Luke 6, 46 says this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. When a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. What are you building your life on? Have you been caught up in the glory of Christ and his love for you? So that obeying his commands is what you desire to do. His love that pursued you while you were still a sinner. While you were still a long way off from him. The love that, that welcomed the nails. Because it, he knew that it, it meant that your sin, your pain, your wounds were going to be taken care of by him on the cross. The love that rose from the grave and conquered death so that you might have eternal life with God, with the God who right now is preparing a room for you in heaven so that you can be with him forever and who's coming back to get you, to take you home. Do you delight in that love? Because if you do, Scripture says his commands are not burdensome for those who love him. Right? We don't view this as a burden, this journey, these commands. If you do, then you're not viewing it right. We need to talk. Being a Christ follower isn't about all the things you can't do anymore. It's not a list of don'ts. It's a call to be like Jesus. Yeah, that's really different, man. That's a different perspective. Right? I'm calling you to be like Jesus. And what is Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't lie, doesn't slander, doesn't gossip. He's not envious. He's not greedy. And that's what makes him so compelling and attractive. Right? At some point in our journey, we saw somebody living like Jesus or we heard about Jesus and we thought, man, I like Jesus because he's authentic and he's honest and we can count on him and he's loving and he's gracious and he's kind and he's forgiving all these qualities that are like man i like that who wouldn't be drawn to that and so we obey because we love him and we want to be like him so that as we reflect christ we become compelling and attractive People want to be around us because they see Jesus in us. We become compelling and attractive to a hurting world that desperately needs hope and a way out of darkness. If you love me, 
keep my commands, and I will. That's the fun part. And I will. It, it initiates this action on God's behalf. And guys, we have to remember that the disciples were hearing that message, this teaching today, before the cross and the resurrection. Okay? We're on the, the backside of that event. And so, however much they loved Jesus at that point, think about how much more they loved him when he gave his life for them. Right? He was calling them to love and obey his commands before he'd even gone to the cross. We're on the backside of that. We can see the bigger picture. And man, we should be compelled to obey because his love for us is so great. Everything that you're dealing with, have dealt with, are currently feeling the weight of or will in the future has all been paid for and taken care of and covered over by his gracious blood on the cross for us. As a kid, if we're honest, we were probably more compelled to love our parents when they were nice. Right? We have a God who's perfect. How much more should we want to love him? And obey him. To just show him an appreciation for all that he's done for us. That's our motivation, guys. His love for us is so pure and true and whole and complete. Why wouldn't we want to be obedient to him? To honor him for all that he's done for us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for your word. Thank you for this time to come before you today and just... Um, learn about what it is that you want to do in our life. God, that as you transform us and you make us more into your image, that our affections begin to shift, that being obedient becomes less and less of a chore, that loving others becomes less and less of a duty or an obligation, but becomes a privilege to be Christ to those around us, to show them the grace and compassion that you showed us when you received us and all of our brokenness. God, I pray that there would just be this heart shift in us about how we view obedience. It's just becoming like you. That's really all obedience is. It's just being more like Jesus. Who doesn't want to be more like him? <laughs> He's what attracted us to the Father to begin with. So help us just to focus on that. Just I just want to be more patient, more kind, more loving, because that's who Jesus is to me. God, give us the courage to invite other people into this with us. We can't do this on our own. To invite accountability, to invite people to speak into us when they see inconsistencies in our character, because we want to bring things in line with who Christ is. So give us that vulnerability. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do you stand with us as we?